Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is both gamine and romantic. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll understand what I mean by the end of this episode. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 118. Today's guest is Audrey, the progressive, sustainable, and inclusive stylist behind Flourish and secondhand clothing store found by Flourish. She's from Pittsburgh, so all you Pittsburghers, is that what you call yourselves? You're going to want to listen to this. This is going to be part one of our conversation, and we're going to talk about why we overconsume clothing and how we can get that back in check by knowing ourselves better. She's also going to break down the style archetypes and how we can use that information to feel more confident and comfortable with our wardrobe choices. Before we get into that, I'm going to address something that I receive so many questions about. No, it's not vegan leather, although on the topic of vegan leather, you know, I, I talk a lot on this show about a really horrible, horrible job, just super toxic environment I had working for a so-called feminist startup. And recently that brand released a vegan leather suit and I just loved looking at the comments section and how many people were like, hi, why are you selling us plastic? Vegan, this is a scam, et cetera, et cetera. I expected better from you. And I just really uh, got a little, I was just tickled by that. <laughs> anyway, back to what I was talking about. No, we're not going to talk about vegan leather in this episode. We're going to address these questions that I receive on a daily basis. Should we blame resellers and the rising popularity of secondhand shopping for increased prices in thrift stores? And secondly, can we also blame resellers for taking everything so-called good at the store? This is a hot topic for sure. You've all been asking for my opinion. I'm going to give it to you. But first, we're going to listen to an audio essay from Laura of Revive Athletics about how she quit her job and started her own small business. So let's give it a listen. Hello, my name's Laura, and I'm here to tell you about how I quit my corporate job this year and took my side hustle to a full hustle. First, you should know that since the day I stepped into my first corporate job after graduating college, I have been trying to leave. I had just been waiting for the right time and the right idea. But if you had told me two and a half years ago that the grand idea that would finally get me to quit would be selling secondhand premium athletic wear, I would have told you that you were crazy. I would have said that for a couple of reasons. One is that never in my life had I worked retail. I went the restaurant route in high school, so I had no experience whatsoever. But the second and perhaps the biggest reason I would have said you were out of your mind is because before a few years ago, I had hardly ever shopped secondhand. And if I did, it definitely was not for athletic wear. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and this just wasn't a thing for me. I'd kind of known that the fashion industry wasn't great, but I wasn't really sure how to be a better consumer. Then all of that changed. Late 2019, I stumbled upon a book review for the book Fashionopolis by Dana Thomas. In her book, she highlights all the problems with the fashion industry, social and environmental, and ways to be a better consumer. Everyone should read this book. 
And I hope that Dana hears this somehow, or I can tell her someday how her book changed the course of my life. Okay, so after reading the book, I was down a rabbit hole of information in regards to the fashion industry. I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I couldn't believe I had been such a disconnected consumer before. Now I knew too much, and there was no going back. I wanted to change. So fast forward to me quitting my corporate job in June of 2021. Armed with all of this new information I now had and a desire to change and to bring awareness to the issue, I started a side hustle and for the one and a half years prior to me quitting, I was selling secondhand premium athletic wear online. I was distracted from my corporate job. My side hustle took up all of my thoughts and I was spending a significant amount of my free time on it as well. Keep in mind that three months after starting the side hustle, the pandemic hit. So I had a lot of free time and had transitioned to working from home. So even more time at home with my small business. I didn't quit my job right away, but I knew almost immediately that I would regret it forever if I didn't eventually give my full self to this side hustle. So I worked with a new purpose, and that was to save, to support myself when I was finally ready to make that leap. So now it's seven months after I quit my job, and here I am, my own boss. This is the first time I have ever been my own boss, and I love it so much. I will say that I am incredibly grateful to my corporate career prior to this. The things that I learned and the benefits all are what allowed me to make the leap to where I am now, and I'm so glad I waited. There is nothing small about small business ownership. You are every role, and you are the one who has to make all the decisions that impact your bottom line. It's a lot. But it's so rewarding, and I don't think I could ever go back now. And as far as what I'm doing now, Revive Athletics went from being 100% online to a brick-and-mortar store in Portland, Oregon, as of June 30th, 2021, and I still pinch myself. I'm so happy to have this business I love so much where I feel like I can make an impact. I still see so much opportunity for changing people's minds about secondhand shopping and breaking down stigmas related to it, and that challenge excites me. If this Dallas, Texas shopaholic can change her ways, trust me, anyone can. We take in only very gently used items. There's so much out there, especially here in Portland where we have so many athletic brands in our backyard, so that whenever anyone comes in, especially the person who may not often shop secondhand yet, they don't for a second think that they couldn't purchase something because of the condition it's in. We also work with a shelter in the community to donate items as well. Leggings are their most requested item as they provide warmth and comfort to the women of the shelter. My overall wellness has changed drastically for the better since quitting my job. I used to have an eye twitch almost constantly from job-related stress, and that is no longer with me. And not to say that this isn't stress-free, but it's different, and knowing that I'm in full control of my success is so much better than having to answer to several different bosses about work that I'm not fully engaged with. 
My advice for anyone else looking to quit their job is to make a plan and to never rage quit if you can help it. If you're looking to start your own business, then having as much cushion as possible for that first year will be critical. And if you're in a job that can help you to have that, then stick it out just a little bit longer until you're in a good financial place to make the transition. The other final piece of advice I have for really anyone, but especially those looking to start their own business, is to not worry if you don't know how to do everything. So many times I run into other, mostly women who are looking to start their own business and they're so worried about not knowing how to do one or two things. The secret is that no one knows how to do everything. You'll figure it out as you go along. You'll probably make some mistakes along the way, but that's okay. Thank you so much for listening and good luck to anyone out there hoping to make the leap and quit their job and start their own thing. I love talking to people about this, so please don't hesitate to reach out if you want to chat more. If you're in Portland, Oregon, come and see me at our shop. You can also follow along on Instagram at revive underscore athletics, and you can shop online at reviveathletics.com. Thank you so much for such a thoughtful and inspiring essay, Laura. She offers a ton of great advice there, including, but not limited to, don't rage quit. Although, who doesn't love at least fantasizing about a dramatic rage quit that maybe involves throwing a pie in the face of your bully boss? I don't know. I always come back to the pie throwing. I also love that Laura encouraged all of you to reach out with your own questions. Starting a small business is super scary. There's a lot of stuff you just don't know and often you don't know what you don't know. And I think another way we can build community and help others grow is by sharing our expertise in those areas by mentoring prospective small business owners. I mean, small business is the future. There are many ways that we can support small business. One is by helping people who want to start one. I would love to put something together like that, like partnering experienced small business owners with you know, wannabe small business owners. So let me think about it, how I could pull that off and see how it could be done efficiently without too much of my time. If you're interested in participating as a mentor or a mentee, but not as a mentos, do they still make those? They're pretty good. The fruit ones. I've always liked those. Anyway, drop me a line and we'll, I'll try to connect you with people. And when it comes to future audio essay opportunities, we're still working through our great resignation series, but there's more on the horizon. Stay tuned for the end of this episode where I'll announce the theme for the next round of audio essays. And it's a good one. I mean, they're all good. But this is an especially good one. <laughs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. 
late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. 
Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. When I'm not receiving hate mail about so-called vegan leather or requests for lists of places to shop ethically, there are two topics that I receive questions about the most via DMs on Instagram and you know via email, and they're both connected. Are thrift stores raising prices because thrifting has become more popular, i.e. the gentrification of thrifting? Could you hear my air quotes there? Because I was definitely doing the gesture with my hands. And the other question is, is it ethical to resell secondhand clothing, aka are resellers scooping up all the good stuff and taking clothes away from poor people? Some air quotes again there. I'm sure you've thought about these questions or encountered them on your own journeys on social media. You know, before before I break that down, let's review the facts that we discuss a lot around here because I think they come up a lot because they really set the context for all of the arguments or concerns that we raise around here, right? On average, Americans buy about 70 new articles of clothing each year. No, that's not individual socks, okay? I get that question a lot too. And maybe you didn't buy 70 garments this year. Congratulations. I'm really proud of you. Keep up the good work. But let's say you only bought 10. Remember, that 70 is an average. So that probably means another person bought 130 new garments. And yes, it happens those Shein Hall videos, they add up really, really fast. Okay, so we've got the 70 garments. 60% of new clothing ends up in the landfill or incinerator within the same year it was made, which is, oh, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. I'm, I'm sure it does you too. That's 60 billion garments brand new being purchased each year. We're not going to talk about the excess that never gets sold. That's another episode. But keep that in mind, too, that there's just so much clothing in the world, barely or not worn at all. We toss 85% of our unwanted clothing in the trash. We donate the remaining 15% to charities, thrift stores, or textile recycling bins. And that number is low, right? 15% is abysmal. If you brought that grade home on a report card, you would surely be grounded. No PlayStation for you. But that 15% is still, that's a lot of garments. And I'm going to reiterate that many times as I break this down for you, that yes, it's only 15% of our clothing that's being donated, but I don't want you to get the mistaken belief that there that means that there aren't that many clothes out there, that there aren't enough to go around, because I want to assure you, 15% of a hell of a lot of clothing is a shit ton of clothing to be profane. There's plenty of secondhand clothing to go around. I'm going to say that like, 100 more times in the next 10 minutes or so. I just feel like I can't say it enough because I'm hearing this argument over and over again. When I say here, I mean seeing it on social media. I'm receiving messages about it that somehow we're running out of secondhand clothing because everyone's buying it and nothing could be further from the truth. So some things I'm going to say as I break this down are going to feel repetitive, duplicative to you. I have to say them that many times so everyone hears me. 
We can use those 70 new garments per person as a way of visualizing what's happening to our clothing. So if you're the average person, you bought 70 new garments this year, 60 of those will end up in the landfill and 10 will be donated. Once again, 10, abysmal number. When you multiply it by all the people out there engaging in this behavior, still a lot of clothing. Do I wish it were higher? 100%. Please stop throwing your stuff in the landfill, please. I know you're not personally throwing the landfill. Just don't put it in the trash bin, right? Let's be more thoughtful about the end of life of the things that we own. We've talked about that a lot around here. Okay, so we've got 10 garments of those 70 that aren't going to the landfill. They're being donated. Only 10% of them, that's one, one article of clothing, will be purchased from the thrift store where it's donated, whether it's by a reseller or by a customer buying it for themselves. Don't even get me started on the home goods. Very few of them are perfect enough to make it to the sales floor. Much less will be purchased. I mean, no matter what you might be hearing, thrift stores have tons of stuff to sell. And I'm just going to add here that often they're only given a few weeks to sell on the sales floor before they're sent off to landfill, textile recycling companies, whatever, they all enter that cycle of, you know, being bailed back up, sorted, maybe bailed again and shipped overseas to become someone else's problem. I cannot emphasize this enough. Even with us only donating this small percentage of our clothing that we're consuming, there is plenty of secondhand clothing to go around. That doesn't mean you should stop donating. It just means there's still plenty resellers aren't, quote, taking all the good stuff because there are still billions of garments ending up in landfills or being shredded after they go to the thrift store. Furthermore, most full-time resellers aren't shopping at thrift stores at all, actually. They're sourcing from rag houses, estate sales, and private collectors. It's more efficient for them, and there's just so much secondhand clothing in this world, that there are many ways in which to acquire it for resale. Yes, I know you see videos of of resellers at thrift stores with overflowing carts, but trust me, a lot of resellers are using completely different channels that aren't even open to the public. So that raises the question, has thrifting changed in the past few years with the rise of online resale? You know, Depop, Poshmark, Macari, eBay, all of them. The thing I hear constantly is that there is nothing good left in the thrift stores. And this assertion is often followed by because the resellers bought everything good. This, I'm going to tell you, is a story we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel justified in feeling angry and disappointed when we aren't finding what we want. It just feels better to blame someone, resellers, or something the rising popularity of secondhand shopping. What if I told you that the real villain of this story, if there's a villain at all, is time, is fast fashion? What if I told you that the real villain here, the one you should be angry about, is the steady flow of low-quality clothing that many of us gladly bought and barely wore before jamming and an overflowing donation bin. And maybe you never did that. Lots of people you know did. Rather than feeling superior to them, 
let's think about how we can educate them and get them to join us on this journey. Ask any lifelong thrifter, like Dustin or me, lots of other guests we've had on this show, and we'll tell you that we remember an absolute golden era of thrifting when we were teenagers. The thrift stores were still full of incredible 60s and 70s clothing, shoes, accessories, jewelry, home goods, you name it. It was cheap, plentiful. It was so rad. And the funny thing is we thought we were living in the golden era of thrifting, but the people who were maybe like 10 years older than me would tell me that no, thrifting had been even better when they were teenagers because the thrift stores were filled with stuff from the 40s, 50s and early 60s. And people my parents' age would tell me jealousy-inducing stories of finding legit antique clothing from the 1920s when they thrifted as teenagers. So what I'm saying is, thrifting is always going to change with time. Right now, we're seeing a lot of clothes from this century. And remember, we're 22 years into this century. So it's not dissimilar than in 1990 going through to the thrift store and finding stuff from the 70s. So while you might now find some stuff from the 70s or 80s or early 90s at a thrift store, it's going to be a bit of a unicorn because what you're really finding is late 90s and 21st century clothing. And guess Guess what happened in this century? That's right, the rise of fast fashion. So yeah, these clothes aren't always the best quality. And there sure are a ton of them because so many people bought so many of them and barely wore them before donating them and then buying more, barely wearing those clothes and donating them. It's the sad cycle of overconsumption that we discuss all the time around here. The labels inside these clothes, they probably feel less exciting or inspiring. Ask me how many times I've seen a cute dress and then wah, 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 it's old navy. But if I love that dress, if I think I'm going to wear it a lot and it reflects my own personal style, then yes, I should buy it. And if I can't handle that old navy tag, just cut it out. No one cares. No one cares. We have to change our view of what's good. If you hate that these clothes are shitty or low quality or just not that impressive to you, then do your part by buying less trendy fast fashion, buying clothes that you plan to wear for a long time and caring for them so they might never end up in the thrift store. End the cycle and be the positive influence to the others in your life to get them to do the same because the clothes we're wearing right now are going to be in the thrift store in the future. Let's make sure there's good stuff there for people. You know, and the last thing I just wanted to add, you know, one thing I hear a lot about is like the rising prices of vintage from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and in some cases, 80s. I just want to remind you all, That stuff is highly rare at this point and will become more rare over time. And therefore, this is how capitalism works. It's more valuable. There's less of it in the world. People are willing to pay a high premium for it. Honestly, I am happy for the resellers who encounter these things on their their sourcing journeys because 
they get to make a living and they get to make someone else happy. I don't have any sour grapes over them selling that for a higher price. Here's the truth. There are so many secondhand clothes in this world, way more than we can ever rewear. We are not running out of secondhand clothing. And where are these ending up? They're ending up in landfills all over the world, in the oceans, in the Atacama Desert in Chile, on beaches in Ghana, and many other places far away from the nearest thrift store. Forgotten by us, but still leaving their mark on the planet and its people. I am overjoyed that slowly we are removing the stigma of secondhand shopping, and more and more people are adopting it as a normal part of daily life. I'm so glad that people are making a living reselling online. Why? Because shopping secondhand isn't easy for many people. It's hard to know where to begin. It takes a lot of time, access to a car, easy access to laundry, mending materials, and all of the services that these resellers are providing by allowing customers to acquire secondhand clothing with a click or a tap. Resellers are doing great work. They're doing hard work. And I'm glad that they're being paid for their valuable service. Okay, so part two of this conversation is if, why, how are thrift store prices increasing? Is it because of resellers, the so-called gentrification of thrift? There's those air quotes again. Yes, thrift store prices have been increasing. In fact, prices have been increasing for everything. And reselling secondhand shopping has been increasing. But correlation is not causation. Meaning while on the surface it seems logical that thrift store price increases could be related to the increase in secondhand shopping, they actually aren't connected at all. They're just coincidences. Why are prices at thrift stores going up? Well, one is increasing rents. You know that housing rent has been increasing all over the country. If you haven't had to experience this firsthand, you are very lucky. You should probably go buy a lottery ticket today. But we know, even if we haven't experienced it firsthand, we're hearing about it on the news, we're reading about it, Rent has been going up. So has commercial rent. The thrift stores have to pay that, right? Next are higher transportation and facilities costs. Yep, since the beginning of the pandemic, the costs for trucking, heating and air conditioning, even simple things like price stickers and hangers, they've all increased. And thrift stores have to pay those increased costs of running their business. Even bigger even more impactful, is the increased volume of donations that are arriving every day at these stores. Unfortunately, so many people use a thrift store as a dumpster. Um, And unfortunately, so many people buy way too much stuff and use it for too short of a period of time and pass it on. This increased volume of donations has really picked up during the pandemic. You know, people are gutting their houses, they're changing their relationships with their stuff, their downsizing. In order to sort and process this higher volume of donations, thrift stores have to hire more employees to do that work. And like I said, more and more of these donations are either straight up trash or just way too much 
for the thrift stores to handle in one location. So these donations are just heading to the landfill, the shredding facility, or overseas. All of this movement requires trucks, boats, sorting, bailing, and so much more. All of that costs so much money. The thrift store has to cover that too, right? How do they do that? Well, the way every other business does. Those expenses are passed on to the customers. Even if many thrift stores are nonprofit like Goodwill or Salvation Army, some are for-profit like Savers. Those that use the proceeds of their sales to provide assistance programs, which is a lot of thrift stores, well, they've found that the cost of running those programs has increased because everything has gotten more expensive in the past couple of years. Even the nonprofit companies still pay executive bonuses and other perks, so there's an incentive to raise prices and bring in more money, just in general. So yeah, thrift stores are are raising prices for a ton of reasons, but none of them involve resellers or Depop or any other secondhand platform or a rising interest in secondhand shopping. Ultimately, the decision around increasing thrift store prices or the lack of anything good being in stores is interesting, and it's certainly important to have, not because we're looking to villainize anyone, which is how it's happening right now, but because it uncovers a larger truth. Our tendency to blame individuals, resellers and new secondhand shoppers, for a larger problem rather than the systems and societal constructs that are actually at the heart of these problems. That's right. This is a bigger conversation. The real truth is this. We live in a hyper-consumerist, hyper-capitalistic society. We are trained from birth to want new stuff all the time. We want more and more and more, and we never feel satisfied. And all of the large corporations and nonprofits associated with the secondhand supply chain are looking to maximize revenue because they are part of that hyper-capitalistic society. So they're ready to cash in on whatever we're over-consuming right now. Plenty of people have transitioned their fast fashion overconsumption, that buying 70 garments a year or more, to second-hand overconsumption. And that's a problem too. We all have to learn to break the habit, but it's all part of this larger ingrained system of behavior that we have to dismantle together. For example, how many thrift haul videos have you seen this week? Sure, we can blame the resellers or content creators for making those gleeful videos of overflowing shopping carts rolling down the Goodwill aisles, but the reality is that those videos get more views and more likes than a conversation about overconsumption. No one wants to hear that. No one wants to talk about how we need to consume less stuff. They want to see the gleeful cart rolling down the aisle. Resellers rely on social media to acquire customers. So they're just giving their audience what they want in hopes of parlaying it into an income. I don't blame them. They're giving their customers what they want. Rather than being angry at resellers, be glad that they're saving clothes from the landfill. Rather than being angry at new secondhand shoppers, be glad that they're making a more sustainable choice. All of these people, they are part of our community. They are on the same team as us. 
fighting them is fighting ourselves. And that's the enemy of progress right there. Honestly, when I see those kinds of anti-resale, anti-new secondhand shopper conversations happening on social media, it feels like gatekeeping to me, as in limiting who has access to something, who can be part of a movement or a subculture or community. I think a lot of this discouraging anti-resale, anti-new secondhand shopping rhetoric, all of these negative posts about it, all of these arguments that are, they're bad faith arguments. I think it's all based in gatekeeping the secondhand thrift vintage community. I don't like it because it discourages others from trying this new, more sustainable way of life. And ultimately, this kind of gatekeeping is harmful to everyone on the planet because we need everyone to adopt a secondhand first lifestyle. We need everyone to join this community so we can have the conversation about overconsumption and change our attitudes about stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff together as a community, as a movement. We need everyone on board. You know who never gatekeeps, welcomes anyone as long as they have a wallet? Fast fashion. Sure, they're doing it for greedy reasons, but I do think there's something about the open door of fast fashion that we should be adopting in the slow fashion community because we need everyone to join us to start. It's not even just that we need everyone to shop secondhand. We need everybody to consume less and be more thoughtful about the end of life of the things they buy. And that happens when we have these conversations together and support one another in these changes. Rather than gatekeeping, thrifting, and secondhand, rather than being angry at resellers and new secondhand shoppers, ask yourself these questions. Why aren't the platforms like ThreadUp, Depop, and Poshmark doing more for the planet and its people? They're the real profiteers in the secondhand game, not their sellers. And I'll tell you this, at the very least, Poshmark and ThreadUp, they email me constantly, they push the overconsumption agenda by constantly hitting potential customers with another reason to come and shop. That's not healthy either. That's something for us to think about. Another thing to think about, why do we tend to turn on one another rather than the larger systems and societal norms that are truly responsible? The clothes aren't as great now at the thrift store, not because the good stuff has been picked out, but because the companies making these clothes decided that good was no longer the goal. Profitable was more important. The thrift stores are raising prices because they can't accept making less money off of the things they're reselling. They can't accept absorbing those costs because capitalism tells them that they should always pass every cost increase onto the customer. If people are getting priced out of thrift stores, be mad at the thrift stores. They're making a decision there. And speaking of capitalism, how do we collectively break the habit of constant shopping and consumption, even when it's secondhand? This, believe it or not, is a great transition into part one of my conversation with Audrey. We're going to talk about one of the root causes of overshopping, of overconsumption. That's our own fears and insecurities and not really knowing ourselves as well as we could. 
So let's just jump right in. Hey, Audrey, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hey, my name is Audrey Rocket Collins. I'm a personal stylist and image consultant focusing on sustainable wardrobes that help you look and feel like your most authentic self. Wow, I love that. You've been practicing that, I can tell. That was a major <laughs> In my elevator every pitch. Morning. Yeah. <laughs> so explain a little bit more, like what that like what does that mean from a day-to-day perspective? Like, because people hear that and they're like, okay, but like, do you go, are you a personal shopper? Uh, are you a therapist? Uh, probably a little <laughs> the bit quick answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, like real brief background, both of my parents have had careers in mental health services. So I wow. always assumed that I was probably on the same track to be a counselor, therapist, or even psychologist. Um, huh. Because I've always been you know, exposed to the benefits of listening, helping one another, bettering our communication, and just kind of providing support in all aspects. So (laughs) while I am not licensed, let me put that out there. uh, (laughs) I, I absolutely feel that I've received feedback from my clients that what we do together is totally therapeutic. So what my work looks like in an average client's kind of day-to-day life is the uh, the benefits of things like doing a closet clean out, letting mm-hmm. go of the stuff that no longer fits, doesn't resonate. Maybe it never fit or resonate, yet it's wound up in our closet for a multitude of reasons. And just sort of like offering that detox and that uh, professional guidance to give you permission and support to let go of the things that no longer serve you. With that in mind, with the process of letting go of the stuff and making space, um, when necessary, I also do personal shopping or even online virtual styling to help people add strategic, necessary and fun pieces to their wardrobe to maximize the things we did hold on to. Yeah. I mean, I feel, well, I mean, and I know you agree because we've totally planned what we're going to talk about today in advance. Totally Uh, planned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I also see this in my own sort of life experience, life trajectory as a person developing my style, as a person who's bought tons of clothes, that a lot of times a lot of, or a big part of our overconsumption really stems from sort of a lack of understanding of our own personal aesthetic, our own selves, really, and a lot of our insecurities and unhappiness. Like, that's that leads us to go shopping. Absolutely. Yeah, we're trying to solve a problem that is not actually a problem within us. It's something that we've been made to feel uh, through very strategic pointed marketing that makes us feel like (laughs) something is lacking within us. We're filling that void or trying to fit into that box, that size, that aesthetic that's being sold to us over and over again, rather than really honing in on what feels authentic, what's true to who you are, what communicates the things you want to be shared with the world, the things that set you apart. And you're totally right. Like so much of that unhappiness comes from not really having that clarity. So one of the very first things that I do with my clients is a method that I call the flourish style archetyping method. 
So my company, I should say, is called Flourish Styling Collective. And uh, what I aim to do through the archetyping method is help my clients understand how who they are on the inside, so like what their core personality traits are, what they bring to the table, how they spend their time or, you know, post-pandemic, how they will be spending their time. Maybe we're not doing these things right now. And then <laughs> is there a post-pandemic? I don't know. We're not going down that track. But I, I yeah. Trust me, I spent way too much time going down that rabbit hole. And then I just, I, I never find my way out. No, and there's exactly. no answer. So, there's no answer. Yes. No. <laughs> uh, so as we're able to figure out, in other words, how would we ideally spend our time? And also, what are the day-to-day things we have to do? Um, and then the final portion of this method is, what are your aspirations? What are the the kind of ultimate goals for how you wish to put yourself into the world, how you wish to be perceived? What's the mission here? And by getting really clear on those three components of who we are, I'm able to translate that into very specific categories that we call archetypes. So just like we have, you know, in the professional world, we've got disc profiles and, of course, Myers-Briggs. If you get a little woo-woo, <laughs> we've got astrology and Enneagram. The goal is never to, like, define someone completely. I don't think that's possible. I don't want to what? do that. <laughs> You're saying astrology doesn't do that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm pretty hardcore Capricorn with a Gemini rising, and that feels very spot on for me. I guess you could say I'm multifaceted, but... Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, even if you don't totally like subscribe to astrology, for example, when you inevitably see those memes on your Instagram feed, you kind of nod your head and you're like, yeah, I can see that within myself. So (laughs) style archetyping is the next level of self-assuredness and a deeper understanding of like, oh, okay, I'm not just nodding my head to a meme on Instagram. It's like this person figured me out. And it happens Mm -hmm. over the course of like a 45-minute conversation. It's really cool and really enlightening. And what, what ends up happening as the result is we get really clear on who you are and how that defines your personal style. And when we understand our personal style and identify the parts of ourselves we want to most express, we are able to break the cycle of buying just because. Buying because I feel like I'm supposed to fit in. Buying because Mm -hmm. it's on sale. Buying because everybody else has it. Whatever, Whatever those triggers are, we're kind of able to like release that compulsive or like even bullying that can happen through marketing campaigns. (laughs) Yeah, I, okay, so I'm going to tell you, uh, for Christmas, Dustin bought me this stuff called Dad Grass. It's very, very weak marijuana, Uh and it comes in a really cute package, and I've, like, been smoking it every night as I lay in bed before I go to sleep. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I've got major life anxiety, you know, so it helps. A couple nights ago, I, you know, I, I smoked a little bit. I was laying in bed, scrolling through Instagram, and I was like, I'm so fucking sick of every single uh, line of clothing, the models being so skinny, yes. like so skinny. And then I was like, what if that's the plan? Because you see that and you feel bad. That's like unattainable for so many of us, this flawless body, flawless skin, endless youth. 
And it motivates you to buy something to make yourself feel better. And then I was like, whoa, is that like the ultimate conspiracy theory right there? I don't know. Uh, yeah, 100%. And I, <laughs> it, it, rather than the Illuminati being behind it, it's a group of five uh, middle-aged or elderly white men. <laughs> yeah, This exactly. is a conspiracy. There's a, exactly. there's a plan. They're all laughing from their yachts as they yes. fight. They pour all their money into fighting a raised minimum wage. Yeah. Assholes. No, <laughs> uh, so, but that's that's also that brings me to, you know, I grew up just like inhaling fashion magazines. Like I would get my part-time job paycheck, go to like Rite Aid or Walgreens or whatever and buy like every magazine that had just come out. And I really I had a love-hate thing with the way that we would be presented archetypes for style by those magazines, which were always less about you as a person and more about the shape of your body. Yes. Yes. Or I don't know if you experienced this too, even more general, more about what's available in store (laughs) and how can we get you to choose from one of these things? Right, right. Well, I mean – The important thing to – I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this conversation is like, yeah, I already know this. But just in case you don't, the people working at the magazine who put together these, you know, like, you're a carrot. Is that a shape? I don't know. It sounds like you'd be – that might be it. Might be bad to be carrot shaped. You'd be really long uh, and very tapered at the end. Might like be hard to accomplish tasks. Anyway, uh, let's say you're a carrot or whatever. you know, they're not saying like, oh, we went out on a quest to find the best clothing for people with carrot-shaped bodies. And here's what they are. No, it's like, here is what brands sent us. Here's what our advertisers requested. Mm-hmm. Here's what our editor said we needed to do because we're courting this brand to take out ad space. I mean, it's like such an industry that nothing ends up in a magazine just because someone liked it, yes. right? Or thought it was the best. And so these ideas that like we should be shopping based on our body shape what kind of produce it correlates to what <laughs> geometric you know figure it aligns with what polygon you are uh it's like ingrained where i'm like i mean i remember even in my career would be like wow this is gonna be really tough for people who are an inverted triangle mm-hmm. you know like that kind of thing and i was wondering like do people come to you with sort of like pre-baked beliefs that have been fed to them, like, oh, I can't wear that because I'm a carrot-shaped person. That's that's for people who are grape-shaped. <laughs> yes, all all of the time, and um, it's it's heartbreaking to be totally honest with you. Over the many years I've been doing this, I've been able to harden myself, <laughs> but it it is it is heartbreaking and sort of like shocking to hear it time and time again. If that makes yeah. sense, because it just solidifies the fact that like. We are being sold what we're supposed to like, dislike, and what we're allowed Mm -hmm. to wear in order to achieve what? Like a visual pleasure for somebody else? Somebody who's probably never going to actually even see us again. It goes back to that very secret room of five white men or no room. They're on a yacht. You're right. All separate yachts. But (laughs) again, they're huge, huge yachts. Yeah. Who is this for? It's certainly not serving the people who are consuming that content. So what I really try to do with each and every client interaction is understand where she's at. Where where Mm -hmm. is she at? What has she already uh, 
experienced, what's sort of, for better or worse, been ingrained or imprinted on what she believes about herself and her image um, so -hmm. that I can offer a lot of support and empathy while also guiding her in breaking down those bullshit rules that have been sold to her because they're Mm. not the truth. I mean, from a very technical image consulting standpoint, there are certainly ways in which we can utilize shapes, colors, textiles, and silhouettes of an item to achieve a different physical looking outcome, right? I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like you can be the master of illusions, you for better or worse, have the ability to change the way somebody else might perceive your body type. However, again, like the goal that I hear time and time again, and that I see in our media is that it's as if we're all supposed to achieve the exact same body type, rather than Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know this, like, when are we going to get to celebrate our differences? (laughs) When is it okay to be carrot or banana or apple shaped? And like, just be like, fuck yeah, I'm a banana. Um, I love that. uh, I lean to the left. I'm a banana. (laughs) So (laughs) I know that most of your audience doesn't know me. You and I have not met in person yet, though. I'm so excited to finally make that happen at some point. But Definitely. Just to just to paint a picture of who you're talking with right now, I'm about five foot five, and I've always carried curves, no matter what my actual weight was. That's just the way my body is built, and I would mm-hmm. not say that I have like some you know slim, thick uh, hourglass shape. I'm not Kim K. I've definitely got a tummy <laughs> after having my daughter, but I've always considered myself closest to an hourglass. Meanwhile, just to do some market research and see what kind of garbage my clients and friends see if they Google like, what body type am I? I put in my exact measurements with my bust to waist and hip ratios. And literally my result was banana. And I don't know what that means. What? (laughs) Considering similarly to a carrot, a banana is tapered on both ends. So what does this mean for me? I don't know. But again, like, thank God I have the expertise to know not to take that at face value. That is absolute garbage advice and not an accurate portrayal of of my shape. (laughs) It's hard out there, you guys. It is hard out there. And I think, you know, we get so hung up on this idea of like, what's flattering, which really is like, what's okay for us to wear. And that, like we said, that's, that's being determined by some dudes on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> and it's not even like, you know, size is one of the things that's just shoved down our throats. And like, I'm still, my brain is reeling that literally someone said banana shape. Because that's, I just picture you have to walk sideways everywhere from shimmy. Um, parrots too. Right. Uh, but also <clears throat> age, age is like such a big one. I, you know, I recently finished watching the Sex and the City reboot yes. and I'm really on Reddit. So I read the comments on there and I'm just like stunned by how this primarily female subreddit is like, she's too old for that. That's <laughs> age inappropriate. Or like I, I have faced that. I remember I, I'm just going to tell you at my last job, one of the assistant buyers on my team was a fucking monster, mm-hmm. uh, like just a terrible person. And she would always be like, aren't you embarrassed that you don't dress your age? Oh. And I was like, wow, well, first of all, I'm your boss. It's really weird that you think you could talk to me like that. But also, 
uh, what? Like, I'm not, well, even if I were 100 years old, I can wear whatever I want. And, you know, that kind of stuff gets into our heads. Like, that's a pretty brutal example of someone being really direct with you about it. But, like, think about, like, all the things I have seen pass by my ears and eyes since I was a teenager. Like, once you turn 30, you should stop wearing mini skirts. Mm -hmm. Or once you're 40, you should always wear long sleeves. Or, like, something uh, – I'm estranged from my mom now, but she – was obsessed not to my face which everyone else around me the fact that i have really long hair and that you should cut that off i guess when you turn some magical age is it 30 35 i'm not really sure <laughs> and it was just appalling to her that i would be have the gall to walk around at my decrepit advanced age with long hair oh my god amanda but you know like yes. these are the things that like we hear like if you're you know 35 you shouldn't wear i don't know like trendy aesthetics you know i yep. like it's i don't even understand i i guess you would reach an age where you're just supposed to put on like a sack and a blazer and like cut your hair really short and call it a day and like why is that okay listen i would hear this stuff when i was like 25 and i'd be like okay noted then when Five i got to 30 <laughs> yeah i can wear I, like i remember being like i guess i shouldn't like buy any more short skirts anywhere because like i'm not going to wear them for very long <laughs> and then i turned 30 and i was like are you fucking kidding me like when did, why did we think it was okay to be like 30s really old 40s really old 50s really old you know what's really old 90 yes 90s really old and i still i would not go up to someone who's 90 and be like mm, i just don't think you're addressing your age absolutely not <laughs> absolutely not there are all of these rules and regulations put in place by the media, sometimes sustained even by bloggers who may not even realize that they're a part of this ongoing mm -hmm. problem of policing women's bodies. Is, it's really what it is. And again, trying to cram you into a box that will achieve some sort of, who knows, again, visual pleasure for somebody who is never going to see you, right? So, yeah. I'm I'm a rebel. Like I'm a grown-up punk kid. This is my this is my background. Like I have always been a little rough around the edges. And with that said, I am an expert rule breaker. <laughs> it has <laughs> been my life's mission to empower other folks, specifically people who identify as women, to say no to break up with clothes that make them hate their bodies more to let go of the crap that has been holding them back from actually liking the way they look and showing mm -hmm. up in a way that feels authentic whatever that means and again like with the way style archetyping works there is a large variety of ways that your style comes out to play this is not about boxing you in this is not about adding more rules and regulations this is about giving you the groundwork to wear whatever the hell you want whenever you want to. Yeah, yeah. that's how it should be. <laughs> that's how it should be. I Seriously, just to reiterate it, I believe that these so-called rules and regulations, which feel like rules and regulations to all of us, yes. right? Like we wouldn't be surprised if they had not been written into law and signed off by the president because they've been so deeply ingrained into us from the moment – we start getting dressed. Absolutely. And I think that these rules tend to make us buy a lot more stuff that we don't build a relationship with, that we toss aside pretty fast because it doesn't feel right to us. 
So let's talk about the archetype. So you and I, you did the process for me and I thought it was, it was so on point. I love that. I really enjoyed going through the process with you and with any client or friend that I have already had a little, a little bit of a rapport with, you know, like I've been stalking you on Instagram and podcasts for (laughs) a thousand years. So I feel like there are indicators in the way you show up in your podcast and through your content that already give me hints at what kinds of archetypes are going to make the most sense for you. So when we were going through your quiz, it was a delight to have confirmation for some of those and also to have the privilege of getting to know you on a deeper level and understanding parts of your personality and how that relates to your style that may not show up in every interaction we've had or that I've had privilege of listening to you have with other guests on the pod. So what I loved about going through this method with you was seeing the things you had already told me about your style, like the fact that you really enjoy the thrill of the hunt when it comes to thrifting or vintage. You love the ability to collect and curate things. Those directly correlated to your archetypes, including the gamine, who is always sort of pushing the boundaries, Maybe she is doing a little bit of like gender bending or what we could also call like androgynous dressing, or she's just a little playful or mischievous. And then we also learned that you have some very key feminine elements in your style as well. You live for a dress. You feel like you in a dress. You have long, beautiful hair. These are classically feminine elements. And while I support people of all bodies and all identities dressing however the hell they please, we do know that we associate dresses and long locks with a more feminine aesthetic. And uncovering that part of you was really cool as somebody who hasn't been able to see a whole lot of you, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely keep a low profile visually, which is intentional, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Exactly. And I get that. I totally get that. So when it comes to understanding the archetypes, I think maybe for our listeners, I could do like a brief rundown of what the heck these archetypes are, because I know I keep just saying that sort of arbitrary phrase. (laughs) No, I'd love that. Yeah. So let's, let's break it. Let's break it down. Tell us about them. Yeah. So with the flourish method, I use eight core archetypes that then can be mixed together to kind of create your own special formula for personal style success. So starting with the most angular and quote unquote masculine uh, archetype, we've got the dramatic The dramatic comes out to play in like a storybook or movie setting, typically as the villain, the bad guy, the witch. (laughs) Um, They just sort of have this like otherworldly, all-knowing, not not sneaky like um, impish or like mischievous, but like secretive. And Mm -hmm. a prime example of seeing this both in personality and in wardrobe would be Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. Sharp, That's what I was picturing. Yes. Uh, But also, I mean, Maleficent has a story behind why she looks and dresses and 
acts in certain ways, right? We all have Mm -hmm. things that have happened to us that will shape the way we show up in our relationships, in our environments. Um, And again, I just want to clarify, like when I use the term masculine, that doesn't mean manly. It means Mm -hmm. sharper, straighter, angular. So going down the line to kind of one step below that very sharp avant-garde vibe of a sorcerer or witch, we've got the cosmopolitan. She is sleek. She is forward thinking. She is the person who you would consider a trendsetter without ever having set out to set the trend. It's not her goal. It's just her way of existing. She's the cool girl. (laughs) She's the city slicker. (laughs) And she's, again, sort of the way a dramatic has that like all-knowing, spooky depth to their personality. The cosmopolitan, she just kind of has it figured out. She's got this self-assuredness, whether it's been cultivated and grown or she was just born with it. She knows some things. (laughs) (laughs) And the way in which you're going to see that style come to life is going to be through less sharp, but still structured lines in her clothing. And when I say lines, that means things like literal lines, like hemlines. So where does the pant fall? What's the shape of the bottom of the blazer? How pointy is the lapel? Things like that. But it can also lend itself to the patterns that are utilized in these textiles. The cosmopolitan in particular often just sticks with solids because it is easier to build a really striking wardrobe, in her opinion, if everything just goes together. So she's going to be wearing something like an oversized, but trim plaid blazer with a sharper lapel and a high-waisted leather or leather look pant. She's pushing the boundaries just a little bit in with the goal of being ahead of the curve. She wants to be sort of first on the scene. Moving down the line further, next up we've got the classic. And the classic is probably exactly what you picture in your mind when I say that word. We're talking about classic almost predictable style. When we envision a typical capsule wardrobe, or if you can't envision it, you're trying to figure out what the hell a capsule wardrobe is, you get on Pinterest and you type it in, oftentimes the core pieces that will first populate are what we all consider to be wardrobe staples. And again, is this Mm -hmm. an idea that's being sold to us and is maybe not right for everybody? Absolutely. But at the same time, to the classics benefit, we have seen things like a khaki trench, a black ankle pant, a almond toe ballet flat come into play for like the past 75 years. These are not new styles. They have stood the test of time in modern history. The classics number one goal when she is building a wardrobe is she wants things to last. So she is electing for the highest quality she can afford. Classics come in all shapes, sizes, and budgets, of course, because again, this Mm -hmm. is not defined by things outside of our control. It's from within us, really. But she is Mm -hmm. going to buy the best quality she can afford at the time she needs to make a purchase. She is probably the most naturally strategic. She doesn't really want to be bothered with a bunch of options. So aside from maybe handbags that feel really versatile, special, or maybe even sentimental, 
possibly investment. She's not collecting a lot of stuff in her wardrobe. She is really about function over form. And the classic is the opposite of a rule breaker. She wants to do the right thing. Her style, as I said, it stood the test of time already. And her mindset is often sort of like, well, it's worked thus far. Why why steer away from that, right? So brands mm-hmm. that are going to resonate with her are also maybe going to be some of those old school brands that have been with us for a long time, such as Brooks Brothers. There are things that you can, we've all come to rely on for creating the same types of things over and over and over again. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of February, St. Evans is supporting the Yellow Hammer Fund, a reproductive justice organization serving Alabama and the Deep South. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Next up, this is sort of our neutral ground style archetype. The natural. Her first goal when she gets dressed, if she even bothers to get dressed today, is comfort. So naturals were thriving at the height of the pandemic when we all had permission to be in sweats all day, every day. Comfort is key. Naturals often also have sort of like a youthful, playful, go-with-the-flow, stress-free sort of outlook. It certainly doesn't mean they have to be young in age, but they have a young spirit, an open mind naturally, and just sort of a willingness to be down for the cause. They're willing to try that new thing. Whereas our classic friend before, she's going to stick with what she knows. The natural is more willing to try something a little bit outside of her element if it physically feels good on her skin. (laughs) 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 So naturals often end up in easy to wear pieces like uh like joggers joggers are for the natural whether she's actually Ah. like active or not she loves (laughs) and right and like that's not that's not a snide remark towards anybody she's looking for things that are just like functional and feel good um, mm-hmm. She lives for like band tees, a plain tee to pair under a jean jacket, maybe if the denim is really washed and soft. <laughs> She's not the person who's wearing a rigid denim that you have to break in for the next four years. She wants things to be easy. So oftentimes a natural is going to be shopping at a place like 
the gap, maybe even Old Navy. But she can also play up that sort of free-spirited part, depending on which other archetype she might be paired with, and go a little bit bohemian. Because she's she's got this sort of like, yeah, sure, whatever. I would love to try that <laughs> way of being in the world. So you can often catch her in something like, again, comfy, soft jeans, but a slightly flowier top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can picture this completely. Yeah. And again, like when she did have to start wearing clothes again, <laughs> as the world has sort of reopened, she is all about the plain white sneaker trend that has taken over the universe. She can wear those plain white sneaks with everything and not even have to pretend to care if it matches or not. It's in style. It's easy. I'm going to go for that. Just slip them on. She's good to go. I see a lot of that here in Austin for sure. So next in line, we've got the creative. The creative is one of the most interesting archetypes for me to work with because I am also partly a creative. So it's really fun to see the ways in which I can help somebody who is already thinking about their wardrobe on a very regular basis enhance or even bring things together. The creative's number one mission, what her primary goal is, is to express something, to share something about who she is on an everyday basis, whether she's getting dressed just for herself, she's just at home, or she's actually going out into the world and knows people will see her. This is me. I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. It makes you feel good to feel like you. Yeah, totally. And And there's a part of you that just needs to express that. That's the goal, right? Yeah. So what the struggle that I see with creative sometimes, even like the two of us who have been in the world of retail and fashion and style for a significant time, is sometimes we will consume something just because it's fabulous (laughs) (laughs) and not necessarily because we know how it fits into our wardrobe, right? Yeah. So when I'm working with a creative who is forward thinking in her fashion, my best service to her is helping her to maximize the things she already owns and to really help her wear her collection because I guarantee she's got awesome stuff and it deserves to come out to play. Sometimes I will see that creatives have tried to squish into a box that doesn't fit, right? Mm -hmm. Or their spirit has been squashed and hurt. And so she is in recovery of having now permission and support to finally be a total weirdo and really expressive, artsy, uh, individualistic human. And Mm -hmm. so again, my support, this is the therapy part coming back in, is just to be her cheerleader. It doesn't mean that she can't shop on her own. It's that she never had permission to trust her own instinct. Yeah, I hear that. I think that that's so true. I I have definitely felt that, you know, when you're working, depending on where you're working in fashion, you really, you really have to represent the brand. It's, it's not even like that is expressly yeah. said in writing, but the reality is if you want to succeed at that company, you will. Absolutely. And I'm not going to lie. There's some companies I've worked for where I'm like, this isn't really a fit to who I am. And so I'm trying to fit myself into this box. And what happens is when I leave that job, all those clothes get donated or sold. Oh, like it just yes. always feels like I was wearing a costume to work. 
Yes, I completely understand that. Yeah, it's like you want to, um, well, there are indicators, right? Like nonverbal indicators of knowing you've found the right people. You've found the right Mm -hmm. crowd, environment, culture, place to live, whatever those things are that you're searching for. And sometimes when we find people who look and feel and act like us, we feel at home. But when our differences are not celebrated, particularly in the workplace, that creative spirit in particular is just floundering. And yeah, you're totally buying and consuming things that will just never work. And then you end up mm-hmm. feeling like a failure. <laughs> yeah. Really frustrated. Yep. Yeah. I really enjoyed doing the assessment with you because I think as a person who's been always really invested like emotionally and otherwise in my own personal style and expressing myself with clothing, it was really validating. It was sort of like someone said, hey, you be you. And I think we all need a lot more of that in our lives. Yeah. I'm I'm really glad to hear that, Amanda. That's exactly what the goal is. Yeah. Per- permission and and simultaneously permission to say um, that assessment didn't work or I don't want to be put into this category. I'm going to do my <laughs> own thing. You have my blessing. <laughs> right. It's, totally. It's just totally. one way of discovering these things. You know, whether you lean into astrology or Myers-Briggs or any of these other, there are so many personality assessments out there. And I've had to at every job I've had, we've taken a different brand of assessment to help determine how we best work and work with others. And you know what? I I think that people, I know myself included, even those BuzzFeed quizzes that are like, what Disney princess are you? We kind of love doing that because we always do figure out something about ourselves, even if we totally lie on the answers. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. And again, like for me, it just goes back to what I think is a really intrinsic part of ourselves. We are looking to fit in. It doesn't mean that like in this term, in this part of our conversation, it doesn't mean we're trying to fit in with what's being sold to us. This is like the true part of I need to find my people Mm -hmm. in order to survive, right? So making sure that you are able to be you so they Mm -hmm. can find you also (laughs) is so fundamental to feeling connected with your, your environment, your community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we have we have three other archetypes. Oh wow! <laughs> tell us, tell us. So uh, I'll I'll try to breeze through these. But uh, next in line after the creative, that's the gamine. We briefly talked about her because she definitely showed up in part in your archetype. And I will say, most people who go through my method of archetyping have at least a combination of two. Sometimes we see three, which is not uncommon, but really it's um, kind of understanding the ways in which multiple personalities are coming together to create, like I said, your your magic, your special sauce for style. So the Gamine, as I mentioned, she's um, often sort of playful with her clothing. She is a little bit mischievous. She, rather than pushing the envelope in like a trend setting way, like the cosmopolitan might, she's pushing the envelope to see what she can get away with. She has this sort of like 
impish uh, way of trying new things to see if anybody notices. And she does want people to notice, by the way. (laughs) She is not interested in flying under the radar. And um, one of the ways in which I see that characteristic come to life frequently is by being really deliberate with the way we mix her patterns and prints, um, being playful with the colors that we include in her wardrobe. Um, And what I mean by that is still honing in on the colors that suit her best. That's a huge part of what I offer my clients. But of the color wheel that's made for her, we're looking at the things that have a really striking interaction together. So we're using color theory to create sort of this like collage of color in her wardrobe. Um, We might be playing with a really unique monochromatic look that's heavy on the pattern play so that she's still doing her like, ooh, look at me, I'm doing something cool and different than everybody. (laughs) Or or she's going full tilt, high contrast. uh, Let's add these colors that have this sort of dissonance between them and we're going to get away with it. (laughs) Totally. Yes, yes. So I like to mention for the gamine archetype, it might come as a surprise to some people, but Audrey Hepburn is actually a true gamine. We think of her as being a classic, and I absolutely think that that is part of her yeah, true style archetype. Interesting. Yeah, I, she trust me. She totally set the stage for a lot of those timeless pieces that I was mentioning before, like her wardrobe and Sabrina. Yes, absolutely. Like those are incredible pieces. But I also know that we've got gamine coming into play in the ways in which she pushed wardrobe and personality boundaries on and off screen. She was one of the very first uh, women in Hollywood who had a pixie cut. She had really tiny baby bangs that were not necessarily the fashion norm in that era. She was also one of the first feminine looking icons who was wearing pants on screen. She kind of started the pixie pant movement, that cropped, tailored ankle pant, when women were still feeling like they were forced to wear like the Dior new look. So a very fitted mm-hmm. bust, a uh, waspy waist, and then if excuse me, a much fuller a-line almost ball gown skirt even just for like a day dress she did that too for sure because again she's got a multitude of style archetypes and of course we know she's playing into other archetypes as she takes on new characters but she was always pushing the boundaries and you can even see it sometimes in the way this sounds silly but in the way her eyebrows were styled she would. She started what I will call the Spock eyebrow shape. So before anybody else was doing an angular look, aside from just like a really sharp, almost seductive angled brow, mm-hmm. she was drawing these sharp lines or her makeup artist was drawing these sharp lines that just sort of like went to the sides of her face and then tapered. They didn't have a soft rounded arch that we were seeing so frequently in Hollywood to convey a more youthful or feminine vibe, or again, like that sultry high arched brow. So she was playful. She was pushing boundaries. She was gender bending. Um, So I got to give her a shout out (laughs) for being an iconic gamine. (laughs) Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of people aren't thinking of that, you know, because, because like, 
so much of her wardrobe of that time has become classic. Yes. And I think that's interesting to think about how these archetypes evolve over time as well. I totally agree with you. Well, and okay, so on the topic of Audrey Hepburn, the second to last archetype is called the ingenue. So there are two more feminine, again, like I kind of hate using these words, but it's it's what I've got right now. There are two more feminine archetypes. We've got the ingenue, who is described as a young femininity or a youthful girlishness. She is the quintessential girl next door. And we absolutely could see that in somebody like Audrey Hepburn. Um, She, no matter what age she was, she would have a girlish kind of demure way of being in the world. Was she also a change maker with a voice for advocacy? Yes. But she just had sort of like an approachability to her. She, She was the girl next door. Even when she was, you know, in her late 60s, for example, the ingenue often will showcase her femininity in small scale ways. So she loves a ruffle. She loves a ditzy floral print. Um, She even likes a very small polka dot, maybe an eyelet, scallops, things like that. But all of those details or textures and shapes they're they're contained. She's not going over the top. It's not an exaggerated ruffle. It's small, tame, safe, and again, approachable. One defining characteristic, and one way that I always know at the very beginning of this assessment that I have an ingenue on my hands, is um, she really wants to get it right, whatever it, it is. Aww. So when we're taking the quiz, She's really thoughtful about her answers and she just wants to make sure she said the right thing. Because <laughs> I'll tell you honestly, when you take this quiz, as you know, it's a yes or a no answer. <laughs> yeah, and it, it goes fast. You're yes. not like, you know. I don't want you to sit there and think about it. Yeah. If you're thinking yeah. about it, you're overanalyzing. And when you overanalyze, it's not your truth sometimes. But the ingenue, no. they always take the longest to take the assessment. <laughs> And they ask a lot of clarifying questions, which I really admire and I love. If you don't know what a word means, I want you to ask me. If you don't know if this identifies in your style or way of being, let's talk about that. But she she is the A student for all of her life. (laughs) I understand this. (laughs) Yes, totally, totally. So finally, on on the flip side of that very girlish, young, youthful femininity, we've got the romantic. And the romantic can show up in a few different ways, again, depending on what she might be uh, combined with as far as archetypes go. But point blank, she's womanly. She's warm. She's often sentimental. And there is this magnetism to her. So she could be something like a pinup, have that sort of like curvy, rockabilly, alluring vibe. Or she could be someone really soft and nurturing, like uh, Glinda the Good Witch. I cannot think of a more romantic fantasy character than Glenda. She is the helper. She has the Mm -hmm. answers. And again, like looking at, there are all these spectrums, right? Within the style archetypes, we've certainly talked about scale and shapes a little bit, but the dramatic who we really started with, 
big scale, big feelings, even if they don't want you to know what those feelings are because they're secretive, because they're a sorcerer. The romantic has equally large scale feelings and emotions, but she's Mm -hmm. letting you know. She's wearing these sweeping trains on her dress. Her wedding gown probably was bedazzled or it had this antique lace that had been passed down in her family for generations. Maybe she went full scale Disney princess and did a ball gown. I mean, why not? It's the most special day of your life. And I want to remember it for always. So (laughs) that's the romantic big feelings womanly magnetic vibes. And again, like sometimes that can go very va-va-voom. Sophia Vergara, for example, she is all woman. She has a very traditionally feminine figure and she's not afraid to show that off. However, that's only one flavor of how this can come into play in a real life wardrobe. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you didn't pick up on what Audrey was putting down, like, yes, we tend to talk about these archetypes in terms of feminine or masculine. We're, like, very aware that that's a very dated idea to that binary. And so people of all genders can fall into all of these archetypes. Yes. Which is exciting, actually. Totally. I feel the same way. And just to put it out there – My method is made specifically to cater to people who identify as female. However, there are other systems to help people who identify as male exclusively. And it's really about finding somebody who can coach and guide you and share support and expertise and understand who you are and where you are at everybody is welcome in the world of styling, whether it feels that way or not. There are actually a lot of us here who want you to feel like you can sit with us. I love that because I feel like when we talk about style, when we talk about fashion, often these two are seen as synonyms. They're really not. Right. Fashion is so exclusionary. In fact, fashion thrives on the feeling of feeling left out because that forces us to buy more stuff to feel like we can fit in. Yes. It's depressing. Amen, my, sister. <laughs> knowing it, knowing is half the battle, as G.I. Joe says. <laughs> Audrey will be back next week in part two of our conversation, where we'll talk more about sustainable style and feeling comfortable and confident in our clothing. In the meantime, I'm going to share some links from Audrey, including more info about the style archetypes. I know you want to see some pictures in the show notes so you can begin your own style journey this week. And I can't wait to hear where you all land. So check out those show notes. One last thing before we wrap up today's episode, let's talk about the next round of audio essays. In today's episode, we talked about the style rules that have been forced upon us as if they are actual laws. From no mini skirts after 30 to cut your hair short at some mysterious age, we're swimming in a sea of style rules around age, gender, size, and lifestyle that are frankly bullshit. Yet we've been exposed to them for so long that we don't know that they're bullshit. (laughs) I want to hear from you. What is a style rule that you're glad to break? 
What was your journey to realizing that your style was personal and nothing to do with anyone else's rules and opinions? Or conversely, are you fearful of breaking those rules and why? Tell us about your relationship with how you dress. See, I told you this is going to be a good one. Okay, so you're like, what is an audio essay? Well, it's a recording that you make either using your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world and I edit and mix it and add it to an episode. I will not accept written essays for this. Sorry, you gotta record yourself. I recommend that you write it out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while recording, just say that part again and keep talking. Don't stop. Just keep rolling. It goes a lot better that way. Trust me, I record myself talking every week. I have found it just goes better that way. I will edit out the parts where you stop, restart, repeat, whatever, when I put it in the episode. So don't fret about that. Record in a quiet room away from fans, air conditioners, fire engines, bus stops, etc. The deadline for this project is April 1st. So you have more than a month to get this done. Of course, you can submit it early too. I love that. Your recording should be anywhere from three minutes to 10 minutes long. And I am so looking forward to hearing from you. You know that I believe the personal is political and our own personal stories drive our decisions and our values. And sharing them is a way to connect with others and have an impact on their decisions and values. We're all on this journey together, and I'm glad to know you're here with me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Researched, written, hosted, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. If you'd like to support my work here on Close Horse, please visit patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.